I'm Roger Channon, and uh, with me today here, I have Professor William Williams. He was the former director of the School of Architecture and Interior Design here at the University of Cincinnati, and former professors at the University of Virginia, Rice University, UCLA, and UC Berkeley. He also graduated with his master's from Harvard Graduate School of Design. So welcome and thank you so much for coming on and being my first guest. I'm glad to be here. I, I also went to the University of Houston for undergraduate. I always want to oh, throw them yeah. in, you know, give <laughs> yeah. them a little bit of love. Yeah. Very cool. Um, so basically, when I first met you, like you talked about how real estate and architecture and how real estate can provide sort of a more of a design opportunity than, say, just going into the field and working for somebody else and learning real estate and I thought that was so cool. And then you also talked about sort of the, the developer today and how it's on such a large scale and um, how doing a more individualized kind of development is kind yeah, of a solution. Right. And I, Well, I, I think for me, part of it is uh, just my interest in the city. And part of that interest involves how we go about developing or redeveloping, particularly inner city and urban communities. In a lot of cases, you get large-scale developments, and I, I don't have a problem with that in general, but in order for a developer to be successful on large scale, they have to attract a, a really generic audience, which means their solutions are going to be very generic solutions. And I think part of the anger or resentment that comes when developers come into communities that haven't had investment for a long time is that they're bringing in this product which doesn't really fit the neighborhood. It certainly doesn't speak to the demographics of that neighborhood. And it's not that they're evil or anything. It's just that by nature of, let's say I have a, a hundred units that I'm trying to sell, I have to attract the broadest right. audience possible for that. And I think when that happens, you lose something. So for me, it was really a design problem and a design question about who does the investment in our inner cities. And I felt it was much better to kind of train um, and prepare a group of students or just young people, particularly architects who've had the, the training, to go out and to take over those buildings individually, allow it to have its own individual character, their character. And that that's just a better way for cities to evolve, grow, and transform. Wow. Yeah, that's that's so accurate. Like, I, I live in Oakley, and there's been so much interest in the past 10 years in development. And, you know, it started with smaller scale things, you know, 20-unit projects. But then all of a sudden, they were doing, like, Oakley Station, and you have 300 units, and it's really generic. But it doesn't seem very, like you said, individualized and thought out to, it's it's just for that general per person. But now we're dealing now in Oakley with issues like we don't have enough parking spaces, infrastructure problems, or in, in like over the Rhine too, you have so much interest. And uh, one of the things I've noticed is like when a developer comes in and takes interest in an area, the area almost changes a lot of times too quickly th that you're kind of thrown off guard. You can't really think about these changes, are they helping or are they hurting? And like, you know, when you think of gentrification and over the Rhine, and we talk about that issue in school a lot, I don't think 10 years ago people were ever concerned about that happening. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I think I arrived here in 2010, and I remember when I first got here, I was just 
convinced that Over the Rhine, which is now, of course, has been rebranded as OTR, but I was convinced it was the most intractable poverty that I had ever seen. And I, I thought there was no way that it was going to, to gentrify. I mean, I was almost like, that's almost laughable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was clearly wrong because it's barely recognizable from the neighborhood that I first came to know. And in fact, I, I lived there when I first came to Cincinnati. So it has completely changed, and it's changed rapidly. And in many ways, of course, the demographics have also changed. Um, it was a really affordable place to live when I lived mm-hmm. there. And, you know, now I can't, you just can't go out to eat unless you really right. want to like put in $15 yeah, for a hot dog. Or yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's <laughs> just it's an incredible uh, transformation. And it's actually one of the better examples of how sort of neighborhoods have been revitalized because they've done a good job of keeping out chains and other things to give it some local you know, connection. But still, just because of the scale of it, and again, they're trying to attract a, a generic um, group of buyers, certainly at a certain price point, it just doesn't have – it's starting to lose some of the character, mm-hmm. at least parts of it. I mean, uh, there's a difference between what happens on Vine Street in some ways, what happens on Main Street. Main Street has, in some ways, kept a little bit more of its personality. So in your mind, if you if you had a student and then they go out and they're – they're going to take on this role of the developer architect and they're going to do a more individualized design. Do you have like a picture in your head of what that might look like or just it's not a hundred of the same looking? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, hopefully they have a, a good picture of what they think it looks like. But my original um, interest in this came from the fact that I once did a, a studio, just a regular design mm-hmm. studio. And it was supposed to be, I talked about it being a student housing, you know, and I, and I, but I gave them the exact same program as if it was affordable housing. Um, and it was one of the best affordable housing studios I've ever seen. I just thought the work was so much more, um, well, empathic. It was, it was much more about connections and where people would interact. And there were a lot of things that, they were doing in those projects when they believed it was for for themselves and for mm-hmm. other students that never really happens in affordable housing so part of what i started to take from that was that when you sort of place yourself in something individually you just design it differently you design it more for yourself you design it more for a specific purpose and i think if you just take each of these buildings individually and we were doing that that people were occupying them in a way that was special to them that you'd have a collection of buildings that was much more interesting than that generic thing because really if there's really almost no programmatic difference between affordable housing and student housing just programmatically right if you just look at the program but affordable housing tends to be pretty bleak right it's just it's almost like a What's the least we can do to solve this <laughs> exactly. problem as opposed to how can we take this opportunity to create a place where we're going to live and work and study and congregate and, you know, there's some people you like, there's other people you don't right. like, so you want some privacy but not always. When you place yourself in it, you just get a different result. And that's really what I'm suggesting is happening with the developers. They're just not able to place themselves 
in it. So they're redesigning or taking over these buildings and doing it for a kind of generic audience. And it has the same problems that I feel happens in affordable housing, where it's so detached as an approach that you just don't get anything exciting or, or interesting. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I worked uh, in construction for a developer, actually, and I saw the, these buildings come up. And I feel like with the generic kind of thing you talked about, and um, but there was also like a lack of interest in putting good materials on it as well. And I, I'm, you know, like, I watched these buildings come up and they were they were already leaking by the time we <laughs> left. And I'm like, well, if more interest was taken to these buildings and, you know, not just how they looked, but like getting decent products or putting vapor barrier in when like that's only going to cost you like 30 cents an extra square <laughs> foot. Like, why not do that? And it's just all about this quick profit and all about this generic. And as you know, that's another criticism I have. But I mean, I think you're so on to something that this is you know, taking extra care, extra interest, making it more personalized, that's not necessarily going to lose money for you as a developer. If anything, I mean, it's, this is a whole new opportunity and people are going to mm-hmm. pay more for something that they feel is more personalized, more for them. Yeah, like I said, I, I, I completely understand. Like I said, if I had to sell 100 units of something, you're going to order everything in bulk. But again, you're really just trying to attract such a large market. I mean, you have a lot of money and capital invested in that. Whereas if I buy one building and it's for me, mm-hmm. then I'm saying, you know what, maybe I'll keep my office on the ground floor. I start thinking about the connection between my office and where I'm living. And, you know, I'm, it's just a much more personal, involved, empathic approach. And that's not really possible to replicate on a much larger scale. Right. Again, it's it's no one's fault, but it's just part of the process. If you're doing 20 facades along Vine Street, I mean, you can try to pretend to artificially make them all different, but it's still the same person (laughs) doing all 20, right? Right. And again, that's different than if I'm doing one and then you're doing yours and several friends of yours are doing others. And I believe that ultimately that's a better way to do it. Unfortunately, a lot of the financing mechanisms that are in place now aren't really helping. There's uh, some of the new opportunity zones. It just, they don't work unless you're putting in large-scale investments. One of the metrics they're using is how big the project is. Interesting, yeah. (laughs) And that's almost the exact opposite of the way I think that we should possibly go. So, So the only way you can really challenge that is to actually get groups of people, individuals together to put, to package it in order to be able to apply for those money. The same thing happens with uh, some of the tax credits. You know, they're looking at the scale of the project as opposed to how you can come in and save a historic building and get some credit for preserving it because it's going to cost a little bit more money to do a lot of the preservation work. The point of the tax credits was to help, you know, support that cost so you didn't just tear it down and start something new. Um, But if they're saying, well, we really are going to give the credits to people who are doing much, much bigger projects, the the cycle just starts to repeat itself. Yeah, that's a great point. And part of the reason I started this podcast was like I wanted to create an educational channel for young professionals and students. And I mean, I think you and I can't emphasize more like you have an opportunity here as an architect to, you know, in school, you, you, you don't have a 
your clients, your, your professor, I would say, and you don't have a budget, you don't have to worry about code, and you can kind of go very, do whatever you want with your designs. And then you get out into the professional world and, well, a lot of that's taken away. Your client dictates a lot of, for better or worse, what that looks like, whether it's the developer or an independent client. But now through doing your own real estate, for the opportunity to do your own development, you take back a lot of that design control. I think that's that's so cool. Yeah, I've, there's some really good ones. There's a really a great architect, I mean, a really good architect named Stanley Seidowitz, who's out in California. And uh, we were colleagues when I was teaching at Berkeley. And, you know, he does his own commissions. He really is an incredible architect. But he also started doing his own housing, you know, multifamily housing mm-hmm. projects. And, you know, it's, it's such a, almost a gift to the city to have someone who's so talented, so skilled, someone who's such a great designer, really coming up and developing these properties. It's just really beautiful work because he cares about the aesthetics of it. I mean, his name mm-hmm. is on it. He, he values it. But he's also really thoughtful about just how they're arranged and they're laid out. And he's not looking for a formula. You know, if he can group parts of, uh, you know, one case he has a project where he kind of loads all of the bathrooms and everything on one side and just to free up the space to make it much more mm-hmm. like a loft. I think a typical developer would say, oh, people don't want to have that kind of bathroom. They don't want to, right. you know, let's just give them the typical thing. But he's actually done some really interesting projects, which um, are, A, they're really well done well-crafted. They're incredible space in terms of quality of light. Uh, but he hasn't had a lot, of, a lot of trouble selling them either. I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's been really able to, uh, to contribute to his living and his firm and everything else, you know, because he's doing really good work and he's in control of it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if college has taught me one thing is you, you have your little cliques and you have people you find that have the same interest as you. And I think it's like that everywhere you go and if you're designing something for yourself and you know there's going to be people out there that have a similar mindset to you be like hey I need this large kitchen or I you know need this really neat looking patio like this is perfect for me <laughs> so you know you, why not do that I mean you're you're doing what you went to school for and yeah well you know, there's so much um, creative energy in a place like here inside DAP uh, one of the things I've loved about teaching, and why I've been doing it now for, well, decades, we'll just mm-hmm. leave it at that, is that it's it's just a passion, the idea of how much is in front of you, and uh, it's inspiring mm-hmm. in that way. But the other thing I'd like to emphasize is that, you know, even as students, students have had an incredible impact on the profession. I think as someone like... Maya Lin was a, what, a sophomore, right? The um, you know the uh, Washington, the, or the Vietnam Memorial. Yep. Yeah, she was a sophomore. Wow! And you know that has really almost completely changed the way we think about how monuments are right. designed. Um, I'm from San Antonio, and anyone who's ever been to San Antonio, other than the Alamo, the thing you know about is the Riverwalk. And what a lot of people don't know was that it was actually a student thesis project many, many years earlier. The guy uh, got out of school. He tried to present it to the city council. You know, they gave him the kind mm-hmm. of thank you for that, <laughs> and shoot him away. 
But when, I guess 20 years later, when they were setting up for Hemisphere, they were like, well, we need to kind of clean up the city and do some things. Wasn't there that one guy who tried to talk about doing something which, with that drainage canal? Mm-hmm. And he came back in. Wow. And again, that was a student project which completely changed the fortunes of that city. And if you're talking about its impact just in terms of real estate <laughs> like development, right? <laughs> the ability for all those businesses to turn their fronts from the street or have dual fronts, one street side, one river walk side, uh, that's really shaped the city. I mean, formally, yeah. as an urban design proposal, it's fundamentally changed the way we look at the city. So again, that's a student, and that's a student's impact in the work that they're doing. So I never discount the power of what students can do and what they can achieve. And so it's that's why I think if we can kind of help train people a little better mm-hmm. to be able to understand the, the development market for students, designers, and this is the important part, for people who are good designers to go through and to tackle that project's problems you know, individually, I just think they have a collective great effect on our cities. Yeah. Well, going back to the Maya Lin thing, I watched a documentary, and she it was just like a simple painting, and it showed the like ground and... Oh, her drawing yeah. submission? It was like uh, compared to some of like the yeah. firms and other things <laughs> no. that are like sections and elevations, yeah. and, and she's it, got and the simple... It was not a good drawing. <laughs> no. No, it did not show a tremendous amount of facility. But the description um, and... The, the rumor is, yeah. is that she got a C on that project. I don't know if that's... True. Yeah, I'm sure that was amended. Uh, <laughs> she, she doesn't well, that, I, I, like I said, I have seen the drawings. It, you know, it was definitely a sea-looking yeah. project. Uh, but you had to really read the description of what she was trying right. to achieve. And clearly, the jurors in that case read it and were able to envision it because she definitely did not draw it. And that, <laughs> but it was uh, uh, I mean, that goes to show you every line matters. <laughs> Be careful. Every, you might. <laughs> well, it's always, you know. One thing that we teach in architecture school is how to present your work. Um, but in that case, she was able to communicate her values and things. And, mm-hmm. you know, like I said, it's been incredibly impactful into the discipline. So, yeah, I, I wanted to ask you, too, how because you don't really, I feel like, learn about these things unless you experience it or somebody tells you. How did you get into this idea of you can apply what you learned in architecture school and do real estate or do you have any like projects that well you know it wasn't so much i uh i had the fortune i guess <laughs> i worked for an architect in san antonio a guy named norcel haywood and um i went into his office just at the time of that recession there's always cyclical recessions mm-hmm. so at one point i think it was just me him and one other there were just like three of us <laughs> and then the economy, of course, came back and the office grew. But since I had been there the longest, I had an unusual amount of sort of control over what was going on in that office for anyone who was still a student and an undergraduate. But one of the things he had me do was to uh, always look at his real estate. He did a lot of affordable housing, Section 8 housing and stuff like that. He kind of did it on the side and it basically funded his office and allowed him to be uh, allow him to be, you know, turn down some jobs. Wow. You know, he had some source of income that he could use to be more selective and critical as a designer to say, you know what, that's just not 
what we do, you know, you should talk to this person. They're going to be much better at that sort of thing than than we are. So for me, it was always a way of, you know, just finding a way to supplement practice in the same way that a lot of people teach in order to, mm-hmm. you know, supplement a practice. So it wasn't so much that I was just impassioned about it in terms of real estate or development. And I, even to this day, I don't think I'm impassioned about it in that way. I was just impassioned about it as a designer and more about not wanting to have to spend all my time searching for clients that I just said, you know, I'd rather just be my own client. Um, that does have some you know, some downsides because then all of a sudden I'm the person saying, wait, I can't afford to <laughs> do this. I got to, you know, but you have to make choices. And I right. think it's better for the designer to make the choices than someone who's, again, making choices based on a generic audience that they don't know, they don't really care about. They just know it needs to be broad enough for you know enough people to buy it. So for me, it was just a way of it's very hard to get commissions um, unless you're sort of known. Yeah, you're well known or you're you have to spend all of your time developing the contacts and connections with people who have money. Maybe it's about being a part of a country club set. It doesn't matter. It's very difficult for a lot of people to find work. So at a certain point I said, well, just I need to just hire myself. And I mm-hmm. think uh, that's really been the thing that started to drive it. Wow. And I think ultimately it's just a better way to go. That's amazing. That's so – I love it. Do, now, if if you had a student and they're saying, hey, I, I think that is awesome, is there, is there something I can do – to get started and I want to do my own designs and be my own client, is there like a path of action or is there some tips or some literature you would recommend to them? You know, I think I'm trying to think about what would be the best way to go about it now. There are some really good um, almost design build architects that are doing some mm-hmm. amazing work. I'm trying to remember, there's a guy out in San Francisco. Now his name escapes me. We'll have to yeah. <laughs> bring that back in. Uh, but his his work is incredible. And he just starts to fabricate his own pieces. I think, you know, he knows enough about building to where he can, again, make the correct choices. And so you have to actually get out and build some things. That's a great point. Or you can you can go watch other people build it. I right. uh, I would suggest when people you know first start, um, even when they're hiring you know contractors and subcontractors to do the work, to just basically sit there with them and you know figure out <laughs> how how they do it, because that's where a lot of the creativity can come back in. It's like when you start to understand, you can watch someone putting up siding. Um, and once you know how to do it, that's fine. But you can also start to say, well, are there different patterns I could create with that siding? Mm-hmm. I don't have to just lay it all up in six-inch things. I can vary that cadence. I can change it where I want to emphasize maybe a point of entry or a change in program behind it. I mean, once you understand the sort of physical aspects of making it, you can better, as a designer, I think, come back in and start to, to play with a little bit. Same. And these aren't things that cost more money. Like, so if you're going to use siding, you're going to use siding, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there are ways to to lay it out that you can actually 
design it and really do much more conscious things. But you have to know technically a little bit what you're doing. Um, you don't have to be, a, like I said, a building you know, technical savant or anything, but you have to care about making things and understand that whole process. That, and that's parts an experience thing. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I don't mean to go into, into like a monologue, but um, I spent a year working as assistant to a site superintendent on industrial tilt-up projects, and then I spent some time just helping a buddy flip houses in residential. The, and the tilt-up was like concrete, right? They cur- poured, curtain in the slab mm, and then tilted back up. Crane, yeah. But I'm, I was there from when they were clearing the land to putting in interior finishes. And when I came back and worked in an architectural office after that, like I had some experience before and I was just learning the ropes and then I came back, it totally changed my perspective of what an architect is and does. And I remember I was out there and we were trying to figure out where to rough in some plumbing. And I spent hours, because the architect didn't mention it, it was a weekend, I spent hours measuring like from column to column and trying to figure out exactly where that would. And then I remember going back to the office and I'm like, oh, I should definitely dimension this. Or you kind of come back and you're looking at your drawings and you go, um, if I was building this, would I be able to understand what I'm drawing? And I think that's – a lot of people miss that, especially like uh, Yeah, how do, how do you communicate your your drawings and your design intent? Right. You know, because you, know, you can draw something even accurately. It doesn't necessarily mean that the person reading it understands your intent. <laughs> and uh, I've seen lots of different attempts. I actually was looking earlier today – Tadao Ando, I saw some of his his working drawings, and they're just—I mean—they're beautiful. You could hang them on a wall. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're so beautiful. But they switch from like two-dimensional details to axonometrics of pieces, and you can tell—you can see what he's thinking. It's like here's the detail, but I also want to show you <laughs> how it's implemented. Right. You know what it's supposed to finish product supposed to be look like, and it's an actually an incredible set of drawings that just takes you through that whole process. So, yeah, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of architects, it's, um, it's harder to, to explain or to express the, the things that you're trying to convey. And if someone's on the site and they don't get it, you know, they might not do it the right the, way. The right way. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, that's so true. Or they'll fall, they'll fall back to convention, right? So, right. you know, you really do have to, uh, Either, you know, draw a really detailed set or you basically have to camp out on site. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really know any other other way to get things done. That, yeah, yeah. And when I think uh, about, I've had a couple internships now, when I think about the architects that really just went above and beyond in their jobs and the people that I saw in the profession and they're like so good and they had so much knowledge, but they're they were they they had they were so good because they understood the materials so well and they were able to play with the siding or mm-hmm. uh, the reveal lines and the tilt up and or do something crazy where they have an angled tilt up wall or something and right. you go wow I mean that person had s- took the extra time to understand how these materials work how they were constructed and then they were able to kind of let that sink in and then put out something absolutely amazing and well you know and part of that is just really being able to listen I know I don't know if you're talking about tilt up earlier and I don't know if you've seen or visited like the Perot Museum in Dallas no that's done by Morphosis 
And the whole the exterior cladding of that is tilt up. Now, they of course made these molds, you know, to pour it in the ground, but they made these molds that you it's a pretty incredible pattern if you take a look at it. But it was actually easy. There were so many people in Texas that do this tilt up construction and do it for highway construction in terms of sound panels. You know, it actually wasn't that complicated from then. They got that. They know how to do that. And I think Tom Main took advantage of that kind of expertise, that comfort with concrete. Mm-hmm. And really just, I think it's a pretty incredible what he did with the facade of that. It's not an expensive technology. I mean, it's, you know, they have lots of concrete yeah. there. I mean, it's, and they're good at it. They use it all the time. And it's actually turns out to be a pretty amazing project. Yeah, you should definitely you know, check it out because it's okay. just, it's almost like tilt-up construction for warehouses or the kind of same thing that they were doing for highway construction. They pour it on site, tilt it up, you know, cart it out there, and they literally hang it wow. onto the facade. That's really cool. Yeah, I remember on, I was, the one, one of the projects I was on, um, the architect had this almost 45-degree angle tilt-up, and then he had, like, a curtain wall. Mm-hmm. And I remember uh, my boss going, oh, there's no way they can do that. And, I mean, the architect came and he's like, hey, it's only going to take you a couple hours to just get this, uh, put this in, this kind of angled panel pour in. And, like, you know, you're going to have to adjust the steel a little bit in, inside of it. And, you know, it was like an extra two or three hours. But the result was like I actually was able to drive by a warehouse and go, oh, my God, that warehouse isn't just a box like it's got something it's got that feature that defines it and i mean maybe I, yeah so <laughs> yeah well it's uh you know it's interesting when you see professionals any design professionals engineers um willing to take a chance on something now part of it's the way our insurance industry works mm-hmm. i mean you can't the, the trades have all been separated so it's hard to build a team to to do something that you know People aren't sure will work, um, but there's still lots of architects and engineers out there, for that matter, that are trying new things every day. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, you know, you don't have a choice. I mean, sometimes it hasn't been done before. You haven't, <laughs> and so you just have to kind of go through and uh, work your way through it. So, you know. No one wants to be the first person to try something and mm-hmm. <laughs> fail it. But it's, it's, you know, you also have to have some fun. I mean, it, it's, right. at least I, look, I don't make enough to not want to have some fun with the work that I'm doing. And that's going to mean an interest, uh, incredible investment, sometimes in, in trial and error. Uh, that's not really a great business practice. But as a designer, that's, it's a really interesting way to go about it. I was just looking at a film about Charles and Ray Eames. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're talking about their experiments in plywood. You know, and I, I didn't know if I knew this before, but of course they were trying to do their plywood and then someone asked them about making braces for soldiers in the military. You know, these splints, they were wow. making them out of metal, but they were too heavy. And so they, before they got the chairs, they actually started making these splints. That came from their own experiments, experiments they were actually doing in their apartment. That's know? amazing. And, you know, a doctor friend came over, saw it, and said, hey, this could be useful for this. And so they started working on that as a problem. And they ended up shipping out like 5,000 of amazing. these, you know, these plywood bent 
splints. And then they went and started to develop the things for the chairs. So sometimes you just have to kind of work your way through a problem, be willing to experiment it. Sometimes, like the splints, the problem itself dictates, you know, creativity, right? It's like, what does it say? Necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. So sometimes right. when you really have to, you start thinking, well, what can we use? How can we do this? And it forces you to try something new. That's so cool. I, yeah, I think sometimes architects kind of in the profession isolate themselves from the community and that greater, like, purpose. And, uh, you... Well, it's a, big, it's a big profession. Right. You know, and there's lots of different types. In school, we focus primarily on producing designers, but it's, you know, a relatively small group of people. You know, and I'm victim of that as well. I mean, I, you know, I want to, everywhere I've taught, I've wanted to be seen as a design school. And I, you know, I tell people, my, my poor wife would attest, it's like, you know, I get paid in some ways to care about things that other people don't care about. Mm-hmm. So the way a material turns a corner or way things attach, you know, I can easily spend a lot of time obsessing about that. But there are actually lots of architects who are doing really great work in terms of community work or sustainability. There's people who are looking at products like CLT and the sort of mass timber construction industry. All these things can be sort of are positive things. My thing has always been how can we make sure that those that work, even sort of social justice work, is still design work, that it's still you know, involved in how we make and create spaces. And I do think the world just needs more beautiful stuff. So, you know, I've always been resistant to people who say, well, you're spending too much time on how it looks. And this is like, well, <laughs> you know, like I said, the world doesn't need more ugly stuff. So, you know, I think we have to be able to combine all these different efforts and work a bit more laterally with both our engineers, but also with planning and landscape architects. And really, because most of our problems are more regional than they are they are local. And even going back to the development side, you know, we have to look at things like housing in a much broader regional scale. It involves connections to transportation, connections to work, employment, and impacts our schools, our education system, even things like tax credits can affect how the school systems get their funding. You know, we really have to think more laterally, more broadly. And I actually think architects are one of the better positioned groups to deal with the kind of complexity of all that, of all the different groups that are coming together. That's what we do. We take disparate elements and we we package them into an aesthetic whole. I mean, that's, that's one way you could describe what we do. That's... And I think we're, you know, I think it's always been the case, but I think especially now, uh, the role of the architect is really to to pull all of these different resources and people and groups together, both local and global. Um, some people say global. I've never really quite caught on to that as a term, but but I get it, right, that what we're doing here locally does have broader impacts, and our job as architect is really to kind of think more laterally, more broadly about everything we're doing, even, you know, where the door handle come from comes from. That's amazing. Well, we're almost out of time here, so I'll finish up with this this last question. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a, a favorite 
book or m movie that you can recommend to students that uh, you feel like maybe has really impacted you? Um, if not, it's... Let me think. A favorite movie or book? Well, I'll stick with the, the movie part. Um, and there's a few. One of them is Vertov's Man with a Movie Camera. I don't know if you ever, but it's, yeah, well, it's an interesting sort of moment in, in film because he's almost filmmaker filming himself filming. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, uh, and so I've always found that pretty impactful. And I could, there's so many, I, my wa wife watches a lot of Bollywood films, and so I have to, to watch them. And it's been interesting to just see the difference culturally between how um, both in character development and things like that. So in some ways, I would say it'd be interesting to watch other, you know, cultures, film work, and just to kind of get a sense of what the value is in those things. I kind of think of a book, but uh, been most impactful, but um, maybe Carter G. Woodson's The Miseduc Miseducation of a Negro. I think that's probably mm -hmm. a good one because it just talks about so much about kind of latent um, latent values or things that we don't even know that we're believing in that in fact we are structurally reinforcing so those would be mine that's amazing well this was awesome I mean mm -hmm. as far as a first podcast goes I feel like this was great thank you so much yeah, no, for this coming is, on this and... is great I, I look forward to you know seeing you continue the series and uh, there's a lot of great people around here to talk definitely, to. And, definitely. Uh, they say if you make it to 10, you'll keep going. So yeah. that's my goal. I'll make it to 10. And well, so good. one down. Number one. So thank you. No, I really, we're going to have to have you back on sometime, and I really appreciate your time, and uh, that was awesome. Thank you. All right. Thanks.